Romans chapter 12 is where we still are. And we're going to just keep looking at this passage uh, until we're done. Uh, I'm not sure when that will be, but I guess it doesn't really matter, huh? When it will be. Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we now come uh, to the main reason why we are here today. Uh, We now approach your word because we want to hear what you have to say. I pray that uh, you would use your most imperfect, uh, weak servant to communicate uh, your timeless truth. Uh, We believe that as we read these pages of scripture, that it is you speaking to us uh, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, We pray that it would, by its power, affect the change that you want to see. Uh, to conform us into the image of Christ. Uh, Father, there are many who will uh, interact with this passage, probably in a more violent way than others, uh, because it is closer to home to what they may be struggling through right now. So for those, I would pray that your word uh, would just powerfully penetrate our thinking uh, and our hearts and our responses, that our highest Our highest pursuit and goal in life would be to be pleasing to you. Uh, That more than anything else, uh, that that's what we would desire. As difficult as it may be, but that would be our desire. And we pray that you would reward and bless that desire in us, Father. That you would use uh, the difficulties we find ourselves in. That you would use uh, the sins that we wrestle with. uh, That you would use... The persecution and the ways in which we are wronged uh, to conform us into the image of Christ so that he might be exalted, uh, that we might merely be trophies uh, and witnesses of your existence, of your power, uh, of your salvation, uh, because that's what you put us here for. Uh, So, Father, we thank you in advance for whatever good will come today. We expect good things. Uh, Whenever we come to you, whenever we come to your word, we always expect good things. Uh, So give us eyes to see and ears to hear and make us to be your humble, submissive servants. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So we're looking at uh, Romans 12, particularly verses 14 through 21, with verse 21 being the target of this whole passage. You should have this memorized by now. Romans 14:21 says what? Don't look. Do not be overcome by Everybody look at me. Quit looking. Don't look at your Bibles. Cheaters. You're all cheaters. Say it with me. Do not be overcome by evil, but Oh, I'm so proud. Okay. That's good. Now By the time we're done with this, you'll be able to quote all eight verses. I guarantee it. Or I'll die trying. Okay. Verse 14. You you probably know this one already, too. This is short. Try to say this without looking. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now you can look because it's going to get a little harder. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but be willing to associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, because it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. In so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And by the way, we'll get to that, but I can't help myself. You shouldn't be thinking, oh, good. He's going to have burning coals on his head and that's going to hurt. I'm so glad. That's not what he's saying. Actually, that's a very positive thing. What he's saying is that by your godly example, your godly response to his wrong, you're going to win him to Christ because he's going to feel so convicted by your godly behavior. So it's really not talking about vengeance or punishment. Sorry to disappoint you. Some of you were hoping. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we've already established the fact the last few weeks that this... You read that, or we read that, and we think, okay, that sounds pretty good, but how in the world am I going to do that? That sounds pretty hard. But when you set it in the context of the entire book of Romans, which I would encourage you, and no, I haven't lost my mind, I would encourage you sometime to sit down and read in one sitting Romans chapters 1 through 11. No, I'm not crazy. You have time. Come on. You can sit through a three-hour Dodgers game. You can read 11 chapters of Scripture. Okay. Right? You didn't like that. Some of you didn't like that. Okay. But this passage will only make sense if it's kept in the context of the whole letter. The only way we can respond to a persecutor in the way that God is asking us to respond is if we have a clear understanding Of who God is and what he has done in our lives. To enable us to be able to respond in that way. And Paul lays out all of that motivation in the first 11 chapters. He talks about sin. He talks about salvation. He talks about justification. He talks about sanctification. A lot of long $5 theological words. But Paul explains it all. Then you get to chapter 12. And he says, therefore, because of all that God has done... Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. One of the ways I can offer my body as a living sacrifice to God is in how I respond to those who are mistreating me. That's one way I can offer my body as a sacrifice to God. That's what he's saying. Paul's letters are always theological followed by practical. Teaching followed by living. You have to combine the two together. We know that that's called progressive sanctification, meaning I grow in my obedience to what God has asked me to do. We know that the center of this text or the center of this command to love those, to bless those who curse us, to persecute us, the center is love. Everything that he mentions here comes out of love, love for God. That's in verse nine. Love for Christ, love for others is the reason that I overcome evil with good. And I love because he first loves me. I'm able to love even those who mistreat me or wrong me because I have been the object of God's love. While I was yet still a sinner, Paul already said early in the letter, Christ died for me. He's not asking me to do anything that he has not already done for me. Have we thought of it that way? Some of you, the light bulbs just came on. I love that look. I love that look. We need to have some of you come up and preach sometime just so you can see. 
Not the ladies, sorry. Though we should have had Alyssa come up and give her testimony. Because she was a little missing. She was out of town. But anyway, we'll do that later. Okay. Look, she's scared. That's good enough for me. Okay. We've got to zoom through the beginning of this. Because on your outlines, you notice I wrote this in for you. Because we've covered this already. How do I endure when this happens to me? Romans 12, 14 through 21. When I'm mistreated. When I'm wronged. When I'm perhaps persecuted. Which will define what he means by persecution. These are the steps I should take. If I'm going to be conformed into the image of Christ through this situation. And I have these written already for you. I recognize that God has not abandoned me in my problem, but that he is there with me. And that he is up to something and not just up to something, but up to something good. I can't help it. I always think of that song. Is it Herman's Hermits? I don't know. How's it? Something good. It has that line. Anyway, sorry. I got mentally distracted. Uh, Oh, I'm into something good. That's what it is. That song always comes into my head. If you have to use that to remember that, then that's fine. That's just the way my brain works. But he already said that in Romans 8, 28 and 29. God works all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. So I look at my situation and I think and I observe how and where is God at work in this problem? What could he possibly be up to? Someone asked me that exact question this week. What could God be doing? And I said, I don't know. But let's look. Let's let's be obedient in the problem as we learn perhaps what he's up to. Then I want to get involved with what God is doing, meaning even if it's difficult, I want to make sure that I'm obeying his clear written commands and that I'm responding in a godly way. I want to make sure I'm doing that much at least as he's working so that he can work even more. And then I should expect good results from God. If I'm submitting to his word and I'm seeking to obey his clear commands in scripture as we work through the situation, we can expect good things to come. Now, we want to be careful about that, right? Who defines what is good for me? Me or God? God. Yeah, some of you are like, God, yeah, I know. Sometimes we have different lists. But uh, seek first the kingdom of God and he will... Add all these other things unto you. Is that right? And his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. The interesting thing about that verse is I don't go to God with this list of things that I want. But I understand that if I'm seeking him first, I begin to understand and learn that he's transforming my desires into his desires. And by the end of it, I find that I'm wanting the things that he's wanting. As I enter into that pursuit. We looked at Paul's situation. It is interesting. From jail, from prison, he writes Philippians. What is the key word in the letter to the Philippians? Joy. Can you say, just say joy so that you don't forget. It's a little paradoxical, isn't it? He's writing from prison. We know he's suffering. We know he's being mistreated. Yet the key word in the letter is joy. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say. Rejoice, he says in Philippians, as he writes from prison. And we say, say, what? That doesn't make any sense. 
Well, his joy was based on his relationship with Christ, not on his circumstances. Because he says there in Philippians 1, even while he's in prison, there are people that are trying to undermine his authority and his ministry. They're trying to do him harm even while he sits in prison. He says there's envy, strife, selfish ambition. They're trying to cause me distress in my imprisonment. But because Christ is being proclaimed, I will rejoice. He said, whether by false means or by true. The only thing that matters to me is that Christ is being proclaimed. It's my earnest expectation and hope that I won't be put to shame by his own behavior. But with boldness, Christ can be exalted. So in a very tough situation, still being mistreated, still being wronged by those who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ while he sits in prison. But he says, hey, they can preach Christ to do me in or they can preach Christ out of love. I don't care as long as Christ is preached. So Paul saw God in his trouble. He was in chains because of Christ. He had a providential view of his being wronged. He recognized that God was up to something. God was giving him opportunities in prison that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And by the way, in Philippians, when he says, I want you to know that my imprisonment has turned out for the better advancement of the gospel. Even others have become more bold to preach Christ. And I have an opportunity to share even with the Praetorian Guard, which we know would be 16,000 soldiers. A ministry that he would not have had if he had not been in prison. So we're expecting good things in Philippians 1. These are just some things we see right out of that chapter. We see that our attitude will be affected. There was boldness, there was gladness, there was eager expectation. Christ will be exalted. We've already talked about that. Other believers will be encouraged by our response, by our godly response when we are wronged. Other believers will be encouraged and the good news will then be advanced, the good news of Christ. All that if we follow God's directives when we are being mistreated or wronged. These are all possibilities. Now, I think you just have the blanks on your outline on the back on the second page. We've been through this many times, but I don't want us to forget. A good rule for applying a passage of Scripture. Remember, there's interpretation. What does the passage mean? And by the way, first of all, we interpret Scripture and learn what did the passage mean to the original readers for whom it was written. And then we bring it into the year 2016 to talk about ourselves. But application is something different. It meant this to the original readers. Well, what, how does this apply to me? I think this is a good way to do that. We look at the four questions that we can take to every passage. What's my duty here? What should I be doing? So you need to be thinking of these four questions as we go through this Romans passage. What is this passage asking me to do? What does God expect of me? Then what character is God trying to create in me or what character traits is God calling for in order for me to do what he's asking me to do here? You might jot down Galatians 5, 20 through the end of the chapter there. This is the fruit of the spirit. That's the character that God is always trying to develop in us. Then what should my goals be according to this passage? What am I trying to accomplish? Where should I devote my energy 
What is he asking me to concentrate on in this passage? And then, how can I discern truth from error? In other words, knowing God's will. What is God's will for me in this passage? Sometimes it's some hard stuff, which we'll see in this passage. All right. Romans, now you have just some blank space, or I think maybe two, right? An A and a B or something. If we get to B... We should have a pizza party because it's not going to happen. Okay. When he says, remember, verse 21 of chapter 12 is the goal of this passage. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This passage is filled with military terms. The word overcome is a military term. That's what it means. Who are overcomers? Well, the Bible tells me that if I'm a follower of Jesus, I am an overcomer. In Revelation 3, we are called overcomers because Christ has already overcome Satan, sin, and death. And if I have died in Christ, meaning if I have turned to his death and resurrection as my only means of eternal life, then I too have overcome. That's my position, my standing before God. And now I need to learn how to live like an overcomer. So Paul's saying in our passage, do not be overcome by the wrongs that others do to you. We have to recognize that every command and requirement of Christ reflects a genuine possibility, meaning he commands us to overcome evil with good. So that means that we can do it. There has to be a shift in our thinking from the get-go. There's no room for defeatist thinking uh, or uh, defeatist self-talk. It's not optional. Jesus, the commander-in-chief, uses military terms, says, You are an overcomer because I have overcome. I'm not asking you to do something that you cannot do. But being able to do it doesn't mean it will be easy, right? Isn't that really what we're looking for sometimes? I want the shortcut. I want the easy way. Uh, I want plan B. Uh, I didn't sign up for this plan. It's like choosing your insurance or something. I got the wrong plan. This one seems to be a lot of work. I want the, the it's like, uh, oh, what's that game? Is it where you hit something on the board and you get to slide? Or whatever. I don't know. Is that shoots and ladders? I don't know. We're looking for that, right? Christian life. Woo, hard times. I got to do something hard. Ooh, I get to slide all the way to the end. But it really feels like go straight to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Is it 200 I don't know. Okay. Impossible does not mean, or hard does not mean impossible. There has to be a shift in our thinking. Paul uses military terms here because we are not to be on the defensive against evil, but we are to be on the offensive in doing good. That's very important here. Sometimes I think when we read this passage and its mother passage in or father passage in Luke six, where Jesus says the same thing. If you want to be part of my kingdom, you cannot retaliate, show revenge. You cannot return evil for evil. You have to return good for evil if you want to be part of my kingdom, because that's how I do things. But we must understand what those words are saying. They're not saying that we are just to be a whipping post or a punching bag. Those, these are offensive military terms. 
What he's saying is doing good is an offensive approach to evil. We don't just sit back. We'll see it in a moment. The passage that talks about turning the other cheek, that passage is talking about taking an active, aggressive, proactive approach to evil. But we sometimes think of that, or we may have thought that that passage was calling us to be passive, not to do anything. But it's not. Romans 12, verses 14 to 20, is the good that we are supposed to be doing that will overcome evil. Doesn't that help? Doesn't that make sense? It's very practical. What says overcome evil with good, well, what good am I supposed to do? Verses 14 through 20 list the good that we're supposed to do to overcome evil. What does he mean by evil? The word evil there in verse 21, it's not a broad, big, generic term for the word. It's a very specific evil that is individually directed personally toward you as an individual. Paul is thinking of in terms of one on one. You're being persecuted by someone because you are a Christian. And let's make that distinction, too. The persecution you are receiving in this passage is because you are a true Christ follower. Somewhere in first Peter, which we'll cover on Wednesday nights in first Peter two nine. We're going to cover that on Wednesday nights. Maybe you guys will have to come down. Well, I'll think about that. Okay. Maybe I'll come up. It's something very personal. That happens because we're Christians. Peter says in first Peter, make sure you don't suffer because you're immoral person or a slanderer or a gossip. Says there's good suffering and there's bad suffering. Don't find yourself being persecuted because you're a jerk. I mean, it doesn't say that, you know, in the Greek, but that's the gist of it. Make sure if you're suffering or being persecuted, it's because you're a true Christ follower or because you're trying to do What's pleasing to God. Now, Paul, and this is important to remember. Paul is trying to point out that the essence of this evil that is being directed to us is most of all aimed at God. That if I follow Christ, there are those who hate him. And there are those who will persecute me because I love him. And there are even those in my life who love me that are going to give me a hard time because I love him. And I want to obey him and I want to serve him and I want to please him. That does not always go over well. And I like this Romans 12 passage because it starts out. It's a mixture of believer interacting with believer. And then it also includes an unbeliever persecuting a believer. But even sometimes among those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we mistreat one another. And sometimes because, how do I want to say it? Some followers of Christ take their discipleship so much more seriously than others. And then they find that they run into problems with even other Christians because we're not on the same page in our pursuit of holiness. But God is always the target. So what's Satan trying to do? He's trying to thwart God's purpose. By tempting us to sin in our response when we are wrong. Because that will disgrace God's name and it will weaken the church. And let me just say this. If you're going through a very difficult problem or time right now. 
how you respond to that or how you handle that has an effect on the church body. Sometimes we, for some reason, we're experts at compartmentalizing or separating. Okay, this is me on Sunday and Wednesday, my happy Christian face. But when I leave here, this is me. (coughs) Or whatever, you know. There is no separation. The church is not a building or a property or a location. The church is not an organization. The church is an organism. The church is you. The church is people. The Norwalk Grace Brethren Church is you and me. What if we showed up next Sunday and there'd been a fire and this place had burned to the ground? We wouldn't be a church anymore because we don't have anywhere to go. Is that right? No, we'd go to Vet and Jennifer's because they have a pool. They have a church pool party. Eddie and Patty's might have to split up. Church is about being together as a group of people. Does it matter if we meet at the YMCA, if we meet in the parking lot, if we meet here? So when you're struggling through something, we're all struggling through. We're not going to get there today. But why do you think Paul says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? You are not going to be able to respond in a godly way when you are mistreated if you're not in a close, tight, intimate relationship with your church family. You can't do it alone. But, but we like to keep things private for some reason. Uh, so through no fault of our own, evil is directed against us because we're trying to live a life that contrasts with sin. So overcoming evil with good. The good here is not passive, but it's active. Think of it in these terms. That the cross of Christ was not passive, but the most active good that overcame the most horrible evil. Isn't that correct? When Christ died for your sins on that day, when he hung there for those six hours in pain and torture, his body beaten and bloodied, do you think of that as a passive event? What did Jesus say? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and the Father has given me power to raise it up again. Which means Jesus died for your sins because he chose to. He chose to. It was a very active way that overcame the greatest evil. What do those passages say? That at his death and resurrection, he destroyed man's greatest enemy. Death and the fear of death. It was not passive. It was active. So he's telling us. To do the same. So the objective is to defeat evil. And retaliating will only spread more evil. But good is the most powerful, aggressive way to defeat evil. Evil is real, but it is no longer to be considered powerful at all by comparison with the power of good. And we think, why in this passage does he say, well, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. It's Paul's way of saying, and he's quoting Uh, Another passage there. It's his way of saying your good should be specific to the situation that you find yourself in. 
And the good that you're doing should be planned ahead, should be well thought out in the situation that you're in. There's someone who is wronging me, maybe even persecuting me, mistreating me. I need to think in advance. I need to plan ahead. What specifically is the good that this person needs? And then plan ahead. What will I say? What will I do? When is this going to happen? Now, back to verse 14. So he begins, the first step in my response to overcoming evil with good is what? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Huh. I thought they would start out with something a little more powerful than that. So I'm being persecuted and the first thing you tell me to do is watch my mouth. Hmm. Does that make sense to you? Some of you are looking down. You don't want to look up because some of you get it. He's talking about mouth management. When I am wronged or persecuted. Hmm. Do you think perhaps Paul is assuming that we all struggle with our words? That maybe our tongue is the first thing that gets us in trouble when we're wronged, perhaps? I know nobody in here, just me. But maybe on occasion. We're going to look at James 3 later and Ephesians 4 super briefly. Paul points out the primary place of communication when I am wronged or persecuted. Once again, this is not passive. It's active. He's asking, how does love talk? Think of it in those terms, because we know from verse 9, love is the center motivation for accomplishing all of this. So I ask, because Paul is asking, how does love talk in this situation when it is wrong? Well, Jesus said in our Luke 6 passage, what did he say we should do for those who mistreat us? Pray. That's one of the first things we do. And all of you, some of you have a look on your face like, you have got to be kidding me. That jerk is treating me like garbage and you're telling me to pray. And I'll say, you got it, sister and brother, because that's what Jesus tells us to do. And we'll see why in a moment. Quite frankly, you know, it's hard to hate somebody that you pray for regularly. It's almost impossible So I know that sometimes we refuse to pray for someone because we don't want to not hate them. In fact, not praying for them is a form of revenge or retaliation. Pray for them. Pray God's best for them. I'll pray something for them, all right? Pray that the door don't hit you where the good Lord split you. That's that's not what he's talking about, is it? But it's tough. But that's what he says to bless and not curse. That's one of the things he's talking about that Ephesians four. I wish we had time to open this passage up, but we don't. But in Ephesians, as in all Paul's letters, chapters one, two and three, he lays down the theology in chapters four, five and six. He tells us how to live out that theology. The book is about the Christian walk. And in the Bible, walk is the same word as life. The Christian life is often called a walk or the Christian walk. But the first thing he addresses 
before he gets to the walking is the talking. Hmm, that comes up again. It's interesting. If you trace it through the scriptures again and again and again, the words, the words, the words, the tongue, the tongue, the mouth, the mouth, language, language, language. It plays a very preeminent role in the Christian life. Before we can walk together, we must learn to talk together. That Ephesians 4 passage breaks down communication into four steps there. That's why I put it on there. We're to be honest. We're to keep current. We're supposed to attack problems, not people. And we're supposed to act, not react. That's how we communicate to one another as Christians. Pretty simple, huh? It's easy. We got this, right? Hmm. Yeah. All right. It's like a sweatshop in here, huh? Some of you are just holding on by a thread. Okay. The communication response to evil comes first. It's useless to try anything else first. Because all the good intentions and efforts in the world can be undone by one careless word. James 3 tells us that. Compares the tongue to several different things, including of great fire. We understand fires, don't we? Says the tongue is like a little tiny spark that sets a whole forest on fire. The tongue, one word can be the spark that sets off the next blue cut fire. Is what he's saying. Is that what that's called, right? After church, somebody tells me what that tell me what that means. I don't even know what that why they call it blue cut. But anyway. Christians must learn how to talk to those who wrong them. That's what that should say. Christians must learn how to talk to those who wrong them. That's the first step. So Paul makes it clear with that command, bless and do not curse, that we do not by nature find this command to be easy. Can I get an amen? Uh, Ben. Then that was kind of a a mum. Okay, there you go. It is inborn within our sin nature, isn't it, to curse quicker than it is to bless. Yeah, it is. So what is Paul saying here? He's calling for a radical change in the way that we talk to especially those who mistreat us. These are kingdom rules. This is what Jesus says. If you want to be my follower, this is one of the things you have to learn to do. There has to be a great adjustment to the normal way of how we do things. Ephesians 4.17. Do not walk any longer in the way that the unsaved walk. And you walked before you knew Christ. But every command of God brings hope, doesn't it? Because he never asks us to to do anything that he won't enable us to do by his power. Sometimes we think God's just setting us up for failure. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. <laughs> okay. Stand back. Here comes the fall. That, that's, no, that's, God doesn't set us up for failure. God has set us up to be overcomers. He commands us to do this, and then he says you can do this. But it takes work. When he says bless, blessing is a positive, active, aggressive response. It's not a passive response. Matthew 5, turn the other cheek, is not passive. 
But if you read through that passage sometime, those ten verses, you see what? He says, if they ask for your coat, or they ask for your shirt, basically, give them your coat. See, it's not a passive thing. It's about giving the persecutor an opportunity to repent by demanding better of him than what he's treating you. We refuse his sinful behavior by thrusting forth something good, by showing concern for him and his sinful condition. Say, why would you turn the other cheek? Why would you give him your coat? Why would you do these things? You're going to return his evil with good. And in that way, the heaping burning coals on his head means you're going to bring conviction, hopefully, from the spirit into his life as he observes your godliness. By doing good, you're giving him opportunity to turn to God. Because that's the most important thing when I'm being mistreated. That didn't sit well, did it? I thought the most important thing when I'm being mistreated is me. I'm being mistreated. It is important to God. He cares. He cares. But it's also important to see the persecutor come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that has eternal consequences. So that's not passivity doing good. Jay Adams says this, Dr. Jay Adams. That is an active, aggressive, demanding response that requires something different from the persecutor. Doing good to another involves the most violent sort of attack on him. Some of you like that. I can see you smiling out of the corner of my eye. It is a pointed thrust at his basic stance towards you and ultimately toward God in whose name you bless. His point is just sometimes we think doing good or turning the other cheek is just a passive, wimpy thing. But that's not what the Lord is saying there. It's the most proactive, offensive, aggressive thing we can do against evil is by responding to it with good. So doing good is showing love. Love is structured by God's commandments. Love is not formless or jelly-like. It's not ooey-gooey sentiment. Love takes a distinct shape in each context. Do you understand what we mean by that? The situation in which you find yourself being mistreated or being wronged or being persecuted. You look at that person specifically And what are his needs? What are the specific ways that I can do something good or say something good in response to this person? It's very specific and shaped by what God's word commands. We're about done here because we're running out of time. Love wins. If you know me, you know that's sarcastic. Sorry. Okay. If you got the inside track on Rob Bell. Okay. Sorry. Love wins. Okay. Love. Sorry. I know I'm strange. Forgive me. Jadon says love like light is a powerful force. Love attacks hatred like light attacks darkness. And love is a force that never fails. Nothing can dislodge it. Nothing can cause it to cease. Corinthians says that love endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things. And such a spirit built into the blessing of others is unconquerable and irresistible. In other words, there is no force or power or person on earth that can stop you from loving them. No matter what they do. See, that's offensive. 
That's militarily offensive. That's active. It's not passive. That's what the Bible means when it says love wins. It can never be defeated. Love is not a feeling first. Feelings come later and then grow in love. Love is doing whatever God says you must do for another to please God, whether at first it pleases you or not. You must do so because God commands you to do so. And you don't wait until you feel like doing so. One of the great things that is built into our humanity by God is that we can act against our feelings to do what is right. It's not impossible. We go to the Lord, we say, Lord, I see this is what your word says, and I'm just not feeling it, but I'm going to do it. And I put a little note down there. Beware of the evil that says I have to be true to myself. Or beware of the evil false teaching that says I'm not going to take action because then I would be a hypocrite because I'm not feeling it. Those are the opposite of what the Bible teaches. I can obey God out of duty whether I have the feeling or not. And by the way, feelings always follow obedience. I guarantee you, I stake my life on it, that your feelings will change if you follow through with obedience to God's word. It's scary. I I know it's scary because because we want to exact our own revenge, because we want to retaliate, because we want this person to get what's coming to him. Sometimes we hesitate to obey because we know that God will change our hearts and we'll find ourselves loving the very person who's mistreating us. That's a very vulnerable position to be in. Do you know anyone who has ever been in such a vulnerable position of loving others? Even at the chance of losing his own life? Jesus, perhaps? For you? For me? Love begins with obeying God. Then loving others as God commands. Love is not just sentimental things. What does it say next? It is hard to love. It is often it often hurts to love. Is that true? Love meant going to the cross through the garden of Gethsemane. Some of you may be shocked by this, but this is a true statement according to these scripture. Jesus did not feel like dying for your sins what the scriptures say and then what does it say the next three words but he did how do you know he didn't feel sometimes we get this impression and forgive me for being sacrilegious of Jesus just running to the cross I get to die for their sins folks he was in such agony his sweat they say this is a true medical condition that when you're under The greatest stress and duress that actually blood will come through your pores. The scriptures say he was sweating drops of blood. And he was saying, Father, if at all possible, don't make me go through this. So in his humanity, did he feel like doing it? But did he subject his feelings to his father's will? He most certainly did. 
he endured. That Hebrews 12, 2. says, follow Christ's example, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He looked to the fact that it was pleasing to the Father. He looked more toward the rewards and the blessings that were going to come because he obeyed what God wanted him to do. So he kept that bigger picture in mind when he was facing his persecution. There's a little bit of something that will help us. When being wronged, when being abused, when being mistreated, when being persecuted, we must try to keep the bigger picture and not the immediate situation in mind. That God is at work. God is up to something good for me. I should expect good things. He can do things in this situation to conform me into Christ. So as we express love to someone who has wronged us, we must focus beyond the immediate. Last slide. He says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. What does he mean by persecute? Well, I believe there's all different kinds of various persecutions, right? Physical But I think it's okay. I don't think it's out of bounds with this text because this verse is in the context of communication and words. I think it's okay to include verbal abuse here. I'm the object of very uh, scornful, mocking verbal abuse because I am a Christian. And even between Christians, we verbally abuse each other sometimes. If you go to Ephesians 4 or Colossians 3, there's a whole list of verbal communication sins. Gossiping, slander, fighting, even brawling, uh, all kinds of things. And that's among Christians. Wow. The most frequent kind of persecution is often verbal. And it's not easy to control the mouth. But love will teach you how to manage your mouth. That's tough. And I know my wife is probably thinking, boy, he's a hypocrite. You can confront me later. Okay. We had a marvelous half day yesterday. Okay. All those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The more godly one becomes, the more likely it is that persecution will increase. The more you live like Christ, the more you will suffer like Christ. So Paul's point is, when he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse. He's not saying maybe or if. He's really saying when. Will you be ready to respond with your words in a way that's pleasing to God And beneficial for even the one persecuting you. Because that's what being a disciple of Jesus is. We can't walk with each other until we learn to talk to each other. And if it's a relationship with an unbeliever, your boss, your spouse, your child, your neighbor. If that person is an unbeliever, the words that come out of your mouth are going to be the most important and the most powerful action that you take first. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Do you have a plan 
about what you're going to say when that happens next time. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would use your word, not mine, your words in our lives, in our hearts. Father, controlling our words is so hard. I'm guilty more than any other person in this room, I'm sure. Because when we're wronged or, or someone is mistreating us, our first response is to return a curse with a curse. And if we truly understood what that word means, then we would think twice. But Father, help us to look to Jesus and to look at how he responded to those who hurled insults at him. The scriptures tell us that he did not revile when he was reviled. He did not return insult for insult. Why? Because he looked at even his persecutors with an eternal perspective. And being empowered by the Holy Spirit, he was able to love even those that were mistreating him. Because he saw heaven and hell behind them. Father, help us. It's not easy. We have to train ourselves in discipline. Constant daily vigilance over our mouths and our words and over our hearts. Our heart must long to be pleasing to you, first of all. And we know that you love sinners because you loved us and you love us. And you've called us to love those who wrong us the same way that you love us. So we pray for that supernatural ability that comes from your spirit and from the scriptures to enable us to respond with words that are pleasing to you and beneficial to our opponents. Because you have said this is what it means to be your follower. So, Father, help us. First, I pray you forgive us for our sins. If you're here this morning and you've struggled with this thing, I'm not even going to open my eyes. I don't want you to open your eyes. But if you struggle with your response in words when you are wronged, and you need to confess that, raise your hand. I'm not opening my eyes. I don't want you to open your eyes. You raise your hand. Go ahead and put it down. Father, we ask you to forgive us for misusing the words that you give us. Uh, for retaliating with words rather than loving with words. For being too consumed with our own hurts, our own pains, our own rights. That we lose sight of being pleasing to you and focusing on others even when they're wronging us because we want to see you at work in their lives too. Father, grow us in this area, especially over the next few weeks as we finish studying out this passage. Help us to be very conscious of our thoughts and our words. Help us to think ahead of time. What are we going to say the next time we're attacked? What are we going to say that will be pleasing to you and beneficial to our attacker? Father, make our discipleship very practical. Make our, you know, we say we follow you. Make it really real to us. Help us to see that this is one of the good things we do to overcome evil. We use the right words. We praise you and thank you for all you've taught us today. The things we have learned did not come from our own wisdom, but from your Holy Spirit. So we leave here rejoicing, praising you, expecting good things in our lives. Because of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, I'm so glad you were here today and that you stuck it out in the sauna. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week. And don't forget, if you'd like to join us for Bible study on Wednesday, 
If you don't have the workbook, don't worry about it. Come anyway. It'll still be beneficial. So thanks for being here today. God bless.